Hey, Phil. What's going Hey, Hannah. Hey, Dickie. <clears throat> Welcome to Crowdsourcing Revolution. Today, we are going to dive into an article uh, by Alex Morell. Uh, the link is in the show notes. And uh, it's a really interesting think piece. So let's let's just get right into it. Phil, you want to start us off? Yeah, no problem. So here it is, Age of Average. Here's the introduction. In the early 1990s, two Russian artists named Vitaly Komar and Alexander Melamed took the unusual step of hiring a market research firm. Their brief was simple, understand what Americans desire most in a work of art. Over 11 days, the researchers at Martilla and Kylie Inc. asked 1,001 U.S. citizens a series of survey questions. What's your favorite color? Do you prefer sharp angles or soft curves? Do you like smooth canvases or thick brush strokes? Would you rather figures that are nude or clothed? Should they be at leisure or working, indoors or outside? And what kind of landscape? Komar and Malamid then set about painting a piece that reflected the results. The pair repeated this process in a number of countries, including Russia, China, France, and Kenya. Each piece in the series, titled People's Choice, was intended to be a unique collaboration with the people of a different country and culture, but it didn't quite go to plan. Describing the work in his book, Playing to the Gallery, the artist Grayson Perry said, In nearly every country, all people really wanted was a landscape with a few figures around, animals in the foreground, mainly blue. So despite soliciting the opinions of over 11,000 people from 11 different countries, each of the paintings looked almost exactly the same. So then they have uh, this grid of paintings. I guess the, yep, this is like a, a three by three of, of some of the results and see what they mean, but well, let's not get into analysis yet. All right, moving on. <laughs> After completing Comar quipped, we have been traveling to different countries, engaging in dull negotiations with representatives of polling companies, raising money for further polls, receiving more or less the same results, and painting more or less the same blue landscapes. Looking for freedom, we found slavery. This, however, was the point. The art was not the paintings themselves, but the comment they made. We like to think that we are individuals, but we are much more like that than we wish to admit. 30 years after People's Choice, it seems the landscapes which Komar and Malamid painted have become the landscapes in which we live. This article argues that from film to fashion and architecture to advertising, creative fields have become dominated and defined by convention and cliche. Distinctiveness has died. In every field we look at, we find that everything looks the same. Welcome to the age of average. Let's dive in. Oh, that's okay. a great introduction. Yeah, that's, yeah, so now... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to also invite, if there's anybody that would like to join on the panel to read a section, we're reading the article that's in the show notes. So if you wanted to click on to it and participate, just go ahead and call in. But otherwise, we are going to dive in. You want me to take the next section, Phil, or you want to keep going? No, go for it. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for... for um, for joining me. Interiors all look the same. In 2011, 
Laurel Schwartz was planning to redecorate her New York apartment when she began searching the internet for interior design inspiration. Before long, the designer had stumbled on the perfect research tool, Airbnb. From the comfort of her home, the app gave her a window into thousands of others. She could travel the world, view a few hundred rooms without leaving her chair. Schwost began sharing images to her Tumblr, Modern Life Space. The blog became an ever-expanding gallery of interior design inspiration. But something wasn't right. Laurel Schwartz, quoting Laurel. The Airbnb experience is supposed to be about real people and authenticity, but so many of them were similar, whether in Brooklyn, Osaka, Rio de Janeiro, Seoul, or Santiago. Schultz had identified an Airbnb design aesthetic that had originally emerged and was quickly spreading through the platform's properties. White walls, raw wood, Nespresso machines, Ames chairs, bare brick, open shelving, Edison bulbs. The style combines the rough-hewn rawness of industrialism with the elegant minimalism of mid-century design. And then there's a international Airbnb style where there's an eight very vivid examples of the description of the room I just described. But Schultz wasn't the only one to identify the trend. Aaron Taylor Harvey, the executive creative director of environments, that's his title, the executive creative director of environments at Airbnb had spotted something similar. He said, you can feel a kind of trend in certain listings. There's an international Airbnb style that's starting to happen. I think that some of it really is a wonderful thing that gives people a sense of comfort and immediate belonging when they travel. And some of it is a little generic. It can go either way. This modern life space or the international Airbnb style goes to a number of other names. It's known as the Brooklyn look, or according to the journalist Kyle Cheka, airspace. I call this style airspace. It's marked by an easily recognizable mix of symbols, like reclaimed wood, Edison bulbs, and refurbished industrial lighting that's meant to provide familiar comforting surroundings for a wealthy mobile elite who want to feel like they're visiting somewhere, quote, authentic, unquote, while they travel, but who actually just crave more of the same, more rustic interiors and sans-serif logos and splashes of cliche accent colors on rugs and walls. Perhaps this seems inevitable. Isn't it obvious that a global group of hosts all trying to present their properties to a global group of travelers would converge on a single, optimal, appealing, yet inoffensive style? Airspace, however, isn't just limited to residential interiors. The same tired tropes have spread beyond the spaces where we live and taken over the spaces where we work, eat, drink, and relax. 
In an in-depth investigation for The Guardian, Jacka documents how the airspace style of interior decor has become the dominant design style of coffee shops. He said, Go to Shoreditch Grind near the roundabout in the middle of London's hipster district. It's a coffee shop with rough-hewn wooden tables, plentiful sunlight with, from wide windows, and austere pendant lighting. Then head to Tack in Manchester. It's a coffee shop with a big glass storefront, reclaimed wood furniture, and hanging Edison bulbs. Compare the two. You might not even know you're in different spaces. It's no accident that these places look similar, though they're not part of a chain and don't have their interior design directed by a single corporate overlord. These coffee shops have a way of mimicking the same tired style, a hipster reduction of obsessed, obsessed with superficial sense of history and the remnants of industrial machinery that once occupied the neighborhoods they take over. And this isn't just a trend we see in British coffee culture. The same trend has been identified in cities from Bangkok to Beijing, from Seoul to San Francisco. And there's a picture of eight examples of just what I described in, in language. A couple more paragraphs to this section. According to The Verge, Quote, the coffee roaster four barrel in San Francisco looks like the Australian Toby's estate in Brooklyn looks like the coffee collective in Copenhagen looks like Bear, Bond, Bear Pond Espresso in Tokyo. You can get a dry cortado with a perfect latte art at any of them, then Instagram it on a marble countertop and further spread the aesthetic to your followers. Once this interior design style became dominant in the world's coffee shops, it began to spread through the wider hospitality sector. Anne Quito, for example, writes about how the hipster makeover has made its way to restaurants in Quartz. Quote, established restaurants are getting the hipster makeover. Traditional restaurants like Dickie's Barbecue in Dallas, eateries in Toronto, Ch Toronto's Chinatown, even the 47-year-old roadside diner chain Cracker Barrel, in the guise of its new biscuit joint Holler and Dash, are embracing chalkboard menus and reclaimed wood look to attract the affluent and design-savvy millennial. So the, so the interiors of our homes, coffee shops, and restaurants have begun to converge upon a single style. But when we move outside, the story doesn't get much better. So that's the first section of of a fairly long essay. Do people would people like to pause here and discuss that or go all the way through the entire Do we have a preference? Mm, I feel like I already have a lot to say but maybe it's Okay. Better. We can pause now. Maybe that's silly. No, I think we. I think no. I think that. I think that when it, it, it's a good time to pause, let's talk about this part because there it's a, it's a very dense essay. We may not get through the entire thing. 
but right. there I will at one point I will jump us to the to the last to the conclusion because this is a lot of really good examples. But let's let's please, Phil. What do you, uh, Andrew? Welcome. Hey, well, hey guys. Uh, hey, what's up, Andrew? Um, yeah, I I don't know if the main point of the article is to identify this aesthetic they're talking about and be like uh, impressed and sort of describe the way it's in all these places across the world. That's interesting, but I feel like it's trying to say more than that. And, but I'm not sure it's actually not clear to me because if they're saying that everything is like this, because I, I, I have seen articles that do that, that they, they ignore all this other awesome shit that's going on. And they, it almost feels like those nodes that have been identified already in this article, like when they're going through these different coffee shops and the different cafes, they're like part of this network and they think that mm -hmm. that's what's going on. So they're like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, this is happening here, here. And you're like, yeah, it is. That's interesting that, mm -hmm. that it's spread this way across the globe. But then if you go on and say like, that's all that's happening. Everything looks the same. You're like, no, no, there's, there's so much other interesting stuff happening. And sometimes the more interesting thing is to watch how in all these cities that are mentioned, actually, I don't know those other cities. I know Philly and New York pretty well. There's actually all these other shops and hairdos and fashions that are mm -hmm. super interesting and constantly evolving. And there is this weird kind of flow towards this weird kind of slightly more boring kind of averaging of it. And that like average weird center node matches up maybe with these other places. But then if you look at the peripheries and all those places, you're going to see some really interesting things. So I don't know, just, just going through those examples, even the cafe stuff. Um, I know in Philly, there's these, there's these places like the last drop and reanimator and they have really strange aesthetics. I think almost in some ways to people who are expecting to see some of the things that are described in this article, they would almost like offend them for it. They'd be like, Oh, that's not the thing. Yeah. It's not the thing. It's, it's a bunch of people kind of working out something else, you know? Um, Well, and I think it's part of the argument that he's working towards saying that that we are converging to average, but maybe his um, final conclusion will be somewhere else. Andrew? I was going to say, yeah, hey, I was going to say from the very first part that Phil read, um, my first thought was that they're going with polling agencies and that's kind of the first problem or like the first um, factor that I would blame for them turning out with the same painting every single time. Um, for a while, I was trying to lobby my city to get more bus routes through this one part of this um, industrial corridor south of Seattle where there's actually a ton of people that need to take the bus through there. <clears throat> but there's there hasn't been a bus there in at least probably 12 years now. And so I wrote up this whole report. I drew out a route that the bus could take that would not be 
um, you know, like a really heavy detour. And I wrote it like sometimes they have kind of an A and B or like alternate versions of a, the same bus route. So um, say it comes every 20 minutes, the first one will go kind of straight down. The second one will take a detour and it'll alternate. And so I tried to make it as easy as possible. And I showed that there's like dozens of businesses and uh, all these little pockets of neighborhoods that could use the transportation. And they're like, well, we've already done the polling and we didn't think that enough people were going to use it. Um, and I'm like, well, okay, but you guys are doing the same lazy polling every time. You're not going to reach different communities than the ones you've already been reaching for several years. Um, so just as far as the painting thing is concerned, that's, um, that's would be like my first reaction. Uh, but I heavily agree with Phil. Like, I think a lot of people um, who might think who might fully agree that like everything is turning in that hipster uh, reclaimed wood industrial Edison bulb, which is totally true. I mean, there's all that kind of shit popping up. I think those type of people who would agree that that's everywhere are not necessarily getting into other neighborhoods um, with different or, you know, countries or different parts of different countries and different cultures and kind of really traveling and not just kind of going the tourist route. Um, and I think like another factor that I would blame this convergence on is the kind of um, monopolization of real estate and um, the lack of investment into the real economy for quite some time now. I think that since you have a small pool of people investing into the real estate and um, they even kind of mentioned it in the article. They said that the coffee shops are kind of incorporating um, a visual design that's from the industrial machinery that used to be in the neighborhoods they now occupy. That was, I think, a really great um, statement. But that's all I have for now. Brady? Uh, yes. I think that traumatized people saw aspects when you're traumatized. Brady, you're breaking up for me. Brady, you're breaking up. There's the step of the fact that we are in wartime and oh, it suffers is the part that I was saying. Uh, creativity suffers in wartime. And also you have to consider that in this experiment they ran, they didn't go for the most interesting or creative selections, they went for the average, you know, the group average, which is just going to be like what makes people the happiest. So I'm not surprised that they got average answers from their study. I think if they were to have gone to every country and asked people like, what is the craziest painting you want to see? <laughs> and then like maybe let those people vote on the top selections of crazy paintings. We would have gotten more diversity that way. Um, but um, also, you know, like capitalism likes things to be uh, mass producible and, uh, you know, they, they like easygoing consumers that aren't hard to select for. And psychedelics um, would really open that playing field up and really open the creativity and the diversity within humanity, I think, as opposed to being comfortable with the monotony. So it's a little bit of wartime. It's a little bit of a uh, environment. Right on. Is it me? 
No, he was breaking up a lot for me too. Okay. Okay. So, so I want to proceed with the, with the article, but I want to, um, because, because he, he goes through several different, um, examples like the interiors. The next one is architecture all, all looks the same. The next one is cars. The next one is people all look the same. The next one is media all look the same. And brands all look the same. And then the conclusion. So, brands, media, people all look the same, cars, and architecture. Does anyone have a preference? Because we don't need to do all of them. We could read, you know, some of them. Anyone? Archit I see. I see a vote for architecture. Stupy. I think people is interesting. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Okay. People. We've got two votes for people. We'll do people, and then we'll do architecture. All right. Somebody want to read that one, or do you want me to? I'm happy to read a section. Awesome. Why don't you read the people's there... section? Hold on, I'm scrolling down to it. Okay, here we go. Yeah. December 2019, the journalist, uh, I'm going to say, Gia Tolentino, said about investigating a troubling trend. Many celebrities and influencers had started to resemble each other. This past summer, I booked a plane ticket to Los Angeles with the hope of investigating what seems likely one of the oddest legacies of our rapidly expiring decade. The gradual emergence among professionally beautiful women of a single cyborgian face. It's a young face, of course, with poreless skin and plump high cheekbones. It has cat-like ears and long cartoonish lasses. Eyes, eyes, cat-like eyes, cat-like eyes. Not what? ears. That's what I said. Cat. You said, oh, you said, said eyes. <laughs> you said ears. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I wish. Okay. I wish it was cat like ears. <laughs> I'm, I'm painting the wrong picture. Okay, hold on. Let me back up. It has cat-like eyes and long cartoonish lashes. It has a small, neat nose and full, lush lips. It looks at you coyly, but blankly, as if its owner has taken half a clonopin and is considering asking you for a private jet ride to Coachella. The look that Tolentino is describing is the result of at least three conspiring trends. <clears throat> the growing market for injectable treatments is driving a trend for physical enhancements. The rise of apps such as Facetune is driving a trend for digital enhancements. And makeup techniques such as strobing and contouring are driving a trend for cosmetic enhancements. Over the last decade, these trends have developed in parallel, each feeding and fueling the other. Starting at the top, Tolentino discusses the rising accessibility of beauty treatments such as Botox and fillers. Quote, 20 years ago, plastic surgery was a fairly dramatic invention, expensive, invasive, permanent, and often risky. But in 2002, the FDA approved Botox for use in preventing wrinkles. A few years later, it approved 
hyaluronic acid fillers such as Juvederm and Restylane, which at first filled the fine lines and wrinkles and now can be used to restructure jawlines, noses, and cheeks. These procedures last for six months to a year and aren't nearly as expensive as surgery. You can go get Botox and then head right back to the office. The cost of achieving this look, which has become known as Instagram face, oh, and there's a bunch of pictures here. If you're not looking at the article, you should do it. The cost of achieving this look, which has become known as Instagram face, is even lower than one may imagine. Whilst the average price per syringe of filler is $683, social sharers can now use apps to achieve similar results. Re Rebecca Jennings, writing for Vox, is quoted saying, Instagram face is so ubiquitous that there are now special filters that give you the look digitally if you can't afford the real thing. Almost no one is born with Instagram face by virtue of it being associated with a digital platform. The look is always mediated and performed. Even those who have it naturally still use tools like Facetune to enhance their already algorithmically perfect features. Finally, these physical and digital enhancements are completed by a third, altogether less dystopian trend, cosmetic enhancements. Here, makeup and an almost endless supply of YouTube tutorials are used to alter the perceived bone structure of a face. Julia Bruccioleri, whoa, I don't know how to say that name. Bruccioleri for the Huffington Post. Social media influencers, oh sorry, she's quoted saying, social media influencers these days are starting to look like beauty clones. You know the look, a full pout, perfectly arched eyebrows, maybe some expertly applied eyeliner topped off with a healthy dose of highlighter and cheek contouring. With a few makeup brushes, a contour palette, and some matte lip color, you can be well on your way to looking like everyone else. <clears throat> so where did this all begin? According to the makeup artist Colby Smith, Kim Kardashian is patient zero of Instagram face. Ultimately, he says, every social media star's goal is to look like her. And Smith isn't the only one to hold this opinion. Writing for The Cut, Kathleen Hu offers a similarly pro provocative opinion. Instagram's beauty posters tend to look like they're all the same woman, and that woman is Kim Kardashian. Thanks to hundreds of get-the-look tutorials, it's never been easier to strobe and contour your face or yourself into a facsimile of the star. So no wonder there's a cloning effect. This may seem like an exaggeration. There is, however, a truth at the center of the assertion. When The New Yorker interviewed Beverly Hills-based plastic surgeon Josh Diamond, he claimed around a full third of all his patients inspired to become a Kardashian doppelganger. I'd say about, and this is quoting the, the surgeon. I'd oh no, Andrew. Andrew. I'd say 30% of people come in bringing a photo of Kim or someone like Kim, and there's a handful of people, but she's at the very top of the list, and understandably so. And we haven't only started to look alike from the neck up. Dame Vivian Westwood, the late fashion designer best known for bringing the countercultural punk scene onto the catwalk, comments on the way the clothing has started to conform. Everybody looks like clones. And the only people you notice are my age. 
I don't notice anybody unless they look great. And every now and again they do, and they are usually 70. We are so conformist. Nobody is thinking. We are all sucking up stuff. We have all been trained to be consumers, and we're all consuming far too much. I'm a fashion designer, and people think, what do I know? But I'm talking about all this disposable crap. So the way we look at the way we dress has begun to converge on a single style. But when, oh, this is the transition to the next section. All right. Looks like we've got um, Andrew coming back. Um, welcome back. Hey. Andrew. Can you hear me? Sorry. Yep. Oh, uh, sorry we, about that. I don't know where you finished, but I finished the section. Oh, okay. Yeah, I also finished the section. Sorry. I, <laughs> I figured. Um, well, okay. It, we, didn't, it, huh? it just stopped like a paragraph early, so let's go to okay, the good. architecture section. Do you want to continue reading, or shall I, shall I, or Stoopy, or Phil? Up to you guys. Yeah, I could do this one since. Uh, okay. I'm done one yet. Okay, architecture, right? Yeah, architecture. All right, architecture all looks the same. The anthropologist Marc Auger coined the term non place to describe built environments that are defined by their transience and anonymity. Non places such as airports, service stations, and hotels tend toward utilitarian sterility. They prioritize function and efficiency over a softer sense of human expression and social connection. In 1995, the professor of architecture and urban design at Harvard University, Rem Koolhaas, published an essay titled The Generic City. Is the contemporary city like the contemporary airport all the same? Is it possible to theorize this convergence? And if so, to what ultimate configuration is it aspiring? Convergence is possible only at the price of shedding identity. That is usually seen as a loss, but at the scale at which it occurs, it means it must mean something. What are the disadvantages of identity? And conversely, what are the advantages of blankness? What if the seemingly accidental and usually regretted homogenization was an international process, a conscious movement away from difference toward similarity? That opening question takes Auger's idea of the sterile non-place and applies it to the city as a whole. Kulhas, in effect, is arguing that soulless is becoming the default design direction of all urban architecture. And they have a panel here of eight cities. I cannot identify most of them, except maybe Seattle. And I think Toronto. <laughs> um, and it, it's called the generic city. It's a sort of waterfront uh, high rises. All right. Almost 30 years after the publication of The Generic City, I think it's clear Koolhaas's fears were well-founded. Architecture's march towards blank homogeneity is perhaps most obvious in the quick-build, low-cost apartment blocks that have rapidly spread across the United States. Justin Fox, writing for Bloomberg, is quoted, uh, Cheap stick framing has led to a proliferation of blocky, forgettable mid-rises. These buildings are in almost every U.S. city. They range from three to seven stories tall and can stretch for blocks. They are usually full of rental apartments, but they can also house college dorms, condominiums, hotels, or assisted living. 
facilities. Close to city centers, they tend towards a blocky, often colorful modernism. Modernism. Out in the suburbs, their architecture is more likely to feature peaked roofs and historical motifs. Their outer walls are covered with fiber, cement, metal, stucco, or bricks. This architectural style, characterized by boxy forms and unconvincing cladding, goes by names such as fast casual architecture and McUrbanism. But perhaps most commonly, these buildings are known as five over ones. When Justin Fox drove across the U.S., he realized that they were not specific to one city or state. They were everywhere, and they were proliferating. In 2017, 187,000 new housing units were completed in buildings of 50 units or more in the U.S., the most since the Census Bureau started keeping track in 1972. By my informal massaging, massaging of the data, well over half of those were in blocky mid-rises. But why is this the case? Why are the majority of large American buildings succumbing to the same style? Kobe Lefkowitz offers four reasons in his essay, Why Everywhere Looks the Same. First, unlike in the early 20th century, developers are increasingly constrained by building codes. Second, rapidly rising land costs cause developers to pack as many properties as possible into every site. Third, the rising barriers to entry have caused the industry to consolidate. And fourth, developers seek to reduce their cost by reusing the same plans across multiple sites. It would be disappointing enough to fail in gracing a land as physically beautiful as the U.S. with the built companions it deserves. But it's downright shameful that we deprive ourselves of living in interesting, meaningful, and wonderful places, given the thousands of precedents for inspiration worldwide and many hundreds within our borders. Instead, we've copied and pasted our society from the most anodyne, the most boring, and the most bleh. We've all seen them, covered with fiber cement, stucco, and bricks or brick-like material. They've showed up all over the country. They've shown up all over the country, independent, indifferent to their surroundings, spreading like a non-native species. And there's a panel of what looks like uh, townhomes or condos that are identical. And it says America's five over one architecture. Cities once felt rooted in time and place, the Victorian grandeur of London, the art deco glamour of New York, the neon modernity of Tokyo. But with anodyne architecture spreading across the United States, cities are becoming to are beginning to lose their contextual identities. They're all starting to look the same. Institutional Developers march forward, ignorant of what makes Portland, Maine, different from Portland, Oregon, or Philadelphia from Kansas City. Unique local traditions, completely different climates. Ha, the joke's on us. A box fits just as well in any of these places. I don't know who that who that's quoting, but it's a quote. And it isn't just the design of our residential buildings, but our professional ones as well. In an article for Grist, Heather Smith describes the homogeneity of the office parks she'd passed by on the way to her mother's place of work and how present-day Silicon Valley feels so similar. All the offices and factories along the way to my mom's office were smaller versions of the same thing, set back from the road behind deep rectangles of rolling green lawn, no sidewalks. Sometimes clusters of begonias added accent marks or regimented little bushes pruned into spheres or squares. Smith continues, I thought about this recently when I went driving through Silicon Valley because I was surprised at how similar it was to the neighborhoods that I had grown up in. 
Not that it was an exact replica, but the architecture was the same. The same low-slung buildings set back from the street by parking lots, each complex each complex in its own self-contained bubble, separated from the road by a row of trees. So the place where we live, the places where we live and work have begun to converge upon a single style, but we're also seeing the same trend occur in the way we travel between them. That's that. Great, thank you. So we've got, would you, is everybody gonna get a thumbs up to continue on the car design? Are we interested in car design? I'm seeing a thumbs. I, Andrew? I'm down to move on or to talk, but I actually wanted to hear um, Doopy's thoughts on the why people look the same, partly because that oh, was yeah, one you voted for, and also because, yeah. um, Stoopy, you've made some really interesting comments before about the obsession with um, physical enhancements. Oh my God. Yeah. Where do we start? Um, first of all, I don't think Kim Kardashian is actually the first to look, uh, to, to do this look. I, agree. I remember, I remember noticing the Bratz dolls at, uh, at Target. Uh, they were having, like, this was in the early 2000s. Um, I work sort of with, with, with kids stuff and games and stuff. So I do always kind of look in the toy section when I'm in, uh, these kind of stores. And I, I, at the time I was kind of interested in, in packaging, like, Oh, how, how are boys toys and girls toys packaged? And, you know, how are things evolving? And, and I remember noticing, uh, the Bratz dolls overtaking the Barbies. And I I remember thinking, this is strange. They're kind of like sexy children, you know, like they kind of, they look like not baby dolls, but you know, they look very young, but then they have all this makeup on and they have this these oversized eyes and really plump lips. And I was just like, wait, is this supposed to be like a kid or is it supposed to be sexy? Because I'm confused and it's kind of creeping me out. And then I noticed, you know, Kim Kardashian getting really popular around the same time. And she had that same look and uh, long story short, I'm grossed out all the time. And I do think there's something going on. I think it's intentional. Um, I think it is to sell a, uh, fillers and and uh all sorts of plastic surgery um but yeah i think it's a sort of like purposeful body dysmorphia that's being imposed on little girls starting at like you know age what six seven um and i see people face tuning their kids you know kim kardashian face tunes her kids photos and it's just it it, it gets them on this yeah and I guess I'm on this path of thinking like, well, this is my best self. And if I ever look um, less than this, you know, people will, people won't approve of me or, you know, I'm not living up to some, some standard that I've set. So. Anyway. Well, I, I think that it's the, the, the model has changed, but it, I think there's just as much pressure when I was coming up and and everybody had to be a fucking stick. Kate Moss was like the shit. Everybody had to be super skinny. It was like the heroin chic thing. Everybody had to be like like if you if you were built like me in the eighties, it, it was not to the advantage of of your self esteem. I was built for the nineteen fifties, thank you very much. <laughs> Like a woman should be. 
and curves were not a thing that were cool in high school when I was in high school. I, I don't even know when the big ass thing happened because I was probably in my uh, early married phase when that happened. But I mean, it's it's bonkers to me that this is people can just go to much more extremes and have much. I mean, I had to read a magazine, watch Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous movies. I mean, there's limited amount of exposure to the popular culture, to the movie stars, to the famous people, for whatever reason they're famous. Now you have like 24-7 access to them, right? Hey, Jenny, if you're talking, I can't hear you. I didn't want to butt in, but I do have thoughts. Go for Please. it, yeah. Thanks. Um, one of my proudest moments came recently when my two daughters are in their 30s told me that neither of them had suffered with eating disorders during their teens. And, you know, as a mom, you always hope that that's the case, but they confirmed yes. And then they told me kind of a list of their friends who had got caught up in that. And it's very addictive. It, it becomes almost difficult to eat a normal meal once you've been binging and purging for a, a number of years. And so I was glad to hear that because I tried to create an environment in our home where, you know, we just tried to have a healthy approach to food and being fat. And two of my kids went through very difficult puberties where they were the chubby middle school kids. And we just bent over backwards not to shame them, not to bully them at home, and then, you know, encourage them with exercise and proper eating. But, you know, where it really comes with family life is with dental care. It's such a first world approach to say that everybody has to have the same teeth. And so my husband and I made the decision early on, we were not going to do anything extreme with dental care unless if there was an emergency, a tooth had to be pulled or we needed some wisdom teeth out, but we were not gonna do the traditional orthodontia. And interestingly enough, as each of my kids hit adult, their adult years, they paid for themselves to get braces, which was just so fascinating that even in the environment they'd grown up in and just kind of the feeling like we don't really go to the dentist or the doctor much, it was important enough to them that they were willing to pay for it themselves. All, all five of them, one son chose not to get the dental care, but the rest of them have all had braces. And my feeling is, you know, great, that's your body. You can do whatever you want with it. But I did not want to bow down to the pressure. And it's intense. In some cities, if you don't take your kids in for six-month dental checkups, you get written up as dentally negligent. And it can be a hit with social services. You know, they'll come mess with you, try to compel you to go. And so it's a thing, you know, that if you bow out, you're nonconformist on some of these body imaging things, there's tremendous pressure to, um, to do whatever the cultural norm is. And so it's just been interesting, you know, over these 30 years of being a mom to watch how the pressures have come and gone. Sometimes it's just the eighth grade girl who wants to have braces like all of her friends, you know, it's like, well, we don't do that. You know, you're just going to have the teeth that God gave you. And so um, I appreciate the conversation. I went ahead and read the whole article quick. And so I, 
as you guys were reading it, I turned the sound down and just read it. It was a fabulous article. Yeah, like in the art. Oh, go ahead, Amanda. Sorry. No, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I like the article as well, and I definitely have more thoughts on the architecture part um, that are Please. similar and different from the interior part, but what? Please, why don't you share? Well, yeah, first just, I want to go I'll into... just drop down. Thanks for letting me participate. Thank, thanks, Jenny, for your input. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think, um, who was it? Uh... Tim put something down in the chat earlier. He said, uh, dude, you think all people look the same now? Have you seen footage of the 1920s? Every man and woman is dressed almost exactly the same, almost the exact same way. Um, and Amanda, you were also commenting that there was kind of a different model, but a similar push for conform for physical aesthetic conformity of people um, in your kind of formative years. And <clears throat> I think a lot of this, again, has to do with like a polling bias where a lot of the footage from the 1920s um, is filming where people are going to work in, in, in growing industrial centers, right? Like that was af after the United States industrial era had matured. And so you have um, you have this whole, um, you know, mass of people buying uh, clothing that is kind of mandated as a dress code for their jobs in industrial or office work in cities. And I think that um, if you, if to kind of contrast with architecture, architecture in the 1920s began to be more standardized, but just a few, you know, decades earlier throughout, you know, I guess let's say the uh, 1890s throughout the uh, into the 1930s, uh, architecture was definitely more regional. Um, there are houses that I'm, I can think of that are kind of from like Bellingham, which is the, the last city before you get to the Canadian border in Washington. And then you can go down to Portland. Um, even yeah, down into, um, um, like kind of middle Southern Oregon. And there's lots of houses that to me look kind of like, they were for fairly wealthy people at the time and they have a style, right? And then if you go to the, and they're, they're more like wood, they've got pitched roofs that are not super steep, but certainly not ones that you could stand up on very easily. Uh, they might have a big front porch, again, all wood banisters and everything. And these houses last a long time. So I think that, um, I think that the, um, I don't know, like the, the, the building code argument is compelling. Uh, I think that there's definitely room in plumbing systems, in insulation, in the outside faces of buildings for a lot more flexibility in building code. Um, because there's, there's tons of houses of different styles. Like if you go to the Northeast, um, I'm sure the, the style from that same era I was just describing is a lot different. Uh, you have different resources around, you know, the, a lot of the forests had already been cut in the Northeast by the time you get to the 1920s. And there's more brick houses and things from what I remember when I, I was really young, when I went to Boston and I went to like Maryland and DC when I was a, a little bit older and there were, 
you know, similar kind of wood houses from that era that I was just talking about, but they just looked slightly different than the ones on the West coast. Um, but I think like when you get to, Oh, why does all the architecture look the same? Why do all the people look the same throughout a lot of the 20th century and into the 21st century? I think again, we're, we're, it's what we're looking at looks all the same. What's, what's been filmed, what's been put onto um, advertisements for marketing um, there's a huge um, concerted effort to make it similar and to make people conform. And I blame a lot of that on the, you know, the, the real top down inputs onto culture that the United States government does and, and that the, you know, the government and the private sector have done ever since, um, you know, Bernays and the end of world war one, when a lot of these like government propagandists went into the private sector I think that if you were to go into rural areas, if you were to go certainly into indigenous communities all over the place, the building style, the clothing, the hair is all very different. And the last thing I'll say, I've been talking forever already. Um, the last thing I'll say is uh, one of the people in the in the people section um, was quoted talking about bringing the punk aesthetic into fashion. And Vivian I think Westwood. like punk. Yeah. Yeah. I think punk and other um, kind of intentionally countercultural um, communities in the United in the United States are, um, you know, they they do try intentionally to be countercultural. But what's really interesting is that they also have a, a center of gravity, where where a lot of the punk styles. Um, begin to become conformist within their own subset of the counterculture. And I don't know, I guess I would say a lot of this has to do with kind of like a lack of, um, a lack of, of knowing who people are like without there being, um, much influence from people's like cultural heritage where they either don't know it or they intentionally shed it to come to the United States or to come to whatever other country and fit into the mold there. Um, I think that's kind of maybe one of the roots of the problem, but I've been talking so long. I, I've... You're fine. You're fine. Um, well, we've got brands still, media, and cars. Can I get a vote for any of those or you want to go to the conclusion? So there are good examples of, of each of these in these different sections. I'm okay to go to the conclusion. I think the other, I kind okay. of skimmed through the other sections and it was sort of more of the same, but with less, uh, you know. Yeah. So there you have it. The interiors of our homes, coffee shops and restaurants all look the same. The buildings where we live and work all look the same. But it doesn't end there. The in the age of average, homogeneity can be found in almost an indefinite number of domains. In the Instagram pictures we post, the tweets we read, the TV we watch, the app icons we click the skylines we see, the websites we visit, the illustrations which adorn them all look the same. The list goes on and on. There are many reasons why this might have happened. 
Perhaps when times are turbulent, people seek the safety of familiar. Perhaps it's our obsession with quantification and optimization. Or maybe it's the inevitable result of inspiration and becoming of inspiration becoming globalized. Regardless of the reasons, it seems that just as Komar and Mel- Melamid produced the people's choice in art, contemporary companies produce the people's choice in almost every category of creativity. But it's not all bad news. I believe that the age of average is the age of opportunity. When every supermarket aisle looks like a sea of sameness, when every category abides by the same conventions, when every industry is converged on its own singular style, bold brands and courageous companies have the chance to chart a different course, to be different, distinctive, and disruptive. So this is your call to arms, whether you're in film or fashion, media or marketing, architecture, automotive, or advertising, it doesn't matter. Our visual culture is flatlining, and the only cure is creativity. It's time to cast aside conformity, and it's time to exercise the expected. It's time to decline the indistinguishable. For years, the world has been moving in the same stylistic direction, and it's time we've, we reintroduced some originality. Or as the ad agency BBH says, when the world zigs, zag. Um, I just want to read one of the notes, and then um, I want to have some discussion if folks are interested in talking about the conclusion. Um, One of the notes is, a few have argued that visual homogeneity is nothing new. I'm open to this critique. Kurt Anderson, however, makes a very compelling case that the rate of change in our visual environment was much faster in the 20th century than it is in the 21st. Anderson's essay, You Say You Want a Devolution, is well worth a read. And the link is at the bottom of that article in case that piques your interest in some way. So what do you... That was the rate of change in our visual environment. What did I say? The rate of change? No, I'm I'm asking. Let let me find it. Sorry. Yeah, um, you said rate of change. Rate of change, yeah. That kind of stuff is always interesting when you're dealing with a big shift during a period of time because, you know, the rate of change. It's like, you know, when you have some kind of revolution, that's the rate of change. And I don't know how to quantify something like that. It it could really be some kind of like image statistics and that's just fine. But I do want to point out that when you take it the next layer, um, which is always trickier of of the actual perception, um, you need a model for how we react to our visual environment and and that's a like I, i'm that's a hairy step um i don't know if i'm being clear Th- there is an analogy here and um people talk about um measures of brightness 
you know, there's like a log, you, yeah. if you measure the number of lumens on a screen, but then actually pay attention to like a psychophysics experiment, when you ask people to perceive brightness, you, you have to, it's not linear, you have to put an extra function in there. And I'm just saying that when someone says something like the rate of change in, in a century was greater, it, it's just interesting to note that that doesn't mean that the sort of psychological shock happened when the rate of change was highest necessarily. Uh -huh. um, just something to keep in mind. It, 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 it's, it's kind of um, a dizzying set of things to hold in mind. <laughs> yeah, well, well, the way I understood it, so the notes here, it says, writer is i'll go ahead amanda oh sorry i was just gonna i was just gonna make it so the rate of change in the visual environment was much faster in the 20th century than it is in the 21st the rate of change in our visual environment is faster in the 20th century than in the 21st that, i i don't know i'd have to read the essay to know well, that makes sense right like it it's sort of the speed of distribution of images, right? Like in the 20th century, it was probably print, right? And that's a slower speed of distribution than uh, something like the internet. Hey, North. Hey, Can't hear you, North. North, I can't hear you. Yeah, I think he has to call back in or, or restart the app. Just restart the app. I got a, a comment. Okay. Um, I think, again, there was, I mean, maybe I missed it, but it seems like there was an underemphasis of investment and available materials. Um, so I guess like pre-industrialization and mass media materials were much more local. There certainly was global trade to an extent in the, you know, earlier 20th century, um, and the late, uh, 19th century. But I think that there was homogeneity in building and in some cases in personal fashion due to locally available materials. Now that said, I think there's a wider variety of personal expression um, in pretty much every indigenous culture in the Americas than there are, than there is within settler cultures today. Uh, but they were still and are still in some cases homogenous depending on local materials and also cultural traditions. Um, but I think the other thing I would say is like, especially considering architecture, especially considering cars, I don't really think there's a whole lot to be said for personal choice in that regard, except for the fact that yes, you can, you can paint and adorn your car, but you can't necessarily buy something, um, that's not a victim of the wind tunnel effect as they wrote in the article. Um, you know, w w this has a lot to do with capitalism 
monopolization as a, you know, a, a natural byproduct of oh shit. Uh, Jade says I'm breaking up a lot. Can anyone hear me? Okay. I hear you. Okay. I can hear you. Okay. Um, cool. So yeah, I, I think the, um, the homogeneity of building projects, vehicles, um, and even to some extent fashion, I mean, this is all driven really heavily by what is actually available to people. Um, you know, if, if, if people don't have alternatives available, most people don't have the time, energy, or expertise to create their own alternatives uh, or money, really, I think is, again, a limiting factor, even if you want to do personal expression. Um, and then the last thing I'll say again that I forgot to say earlier about architecture is I would love to see um, a comparison between social housing and uh, private housing, like for-profit housing. So, you know, there's a lot of cities in Europe that have large quantities of social housing compared to the United States. And very often they have a different um, kind of baseline style of each room. They all have more social um, elements to the building. So courtyards, uh, communal kitchens and gathering spaces that you just don't have in a lot of American uh, apartment buildings or condos and things like that. And similarly with neighborhoods, I would love to see, um, you know, for instance, more rural neighborhoods in numerous different countries, especially in countries where there's a different economic system. So like, for instance, in a lot of Mexico, ever since the Mexican revolution, there's a whole ton of agricultural land that is, um, they're called ejidos. They're like communally run districts. They're run by ejidatarios or otherwise known as bienes comunales. And they, so for instance, everybody has communal grazing rights on everybody else's land in Mexico under the ejidatario system. So there's just not barbed wire fences cutting everything up. You also have the right to, um, gather traditional indigenous species of berries and other materials. So for instance, tule are like reeds that grow along rivers and other wet areas. And a lot of people still weave uh, with tule mats and um, you can make hats and all kinds of other things. You can make kind of canvas for painting with them. You can go and get berries of all sorts. And so this changes, like if you look at agricultural landscape in the United States versus in Mexico, it looks really different because most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, everyone isn't obsessed with keeping a physical barrier up between everyone else's property because they're going to let you come in with your sheep and graze. They're going to let you come into their farm and pick the um, the native capulines or blackberries or whatever. So I think, again, I think this was a, a dimension of analysis that was really lacking in this paper. But overall, I'm still, again, like happy somebody wrote this and that we read it but I would have put in a section on the financing and state control that. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good, a good point. Um, I, was, I had that note too, that, you know, centralized sort of manufacturing and centralized planning and all that stuff also, you know, has an impact. Um, and I wanted to add, like, there was something that made me, uh, think of of like uh 
you know, World War II when they bombed certain cities, right? Like um, in, in, in England and Germany and France and stuff. Like when you kind of look at the architecture of, you know, cities that took hundreds of years to build. And then you look at like everything that was rebuilt after World War II and you just see this like really distinctive soullessness in the new, new architecture. Um, and like, it kind of reflects what happened there, like that something was wiped out and that sort of nothing took its place. Like it's sort of blank and, um, and it is probably because of, uh, financing, like, you know, back in the day, I guess it was like kings or aristocrats or whatever who financed the buildings of a lot of these really nice uh, buildings in Europe. And then when after World War II, it was just whatever, loans and, and shit like that. But um, but yeah, in the, in the architecture section, uh, the writer mentions like a soul soullessness and it made me kind of think also of gentrification and how it's the same effect of just like wiping out the soul of a place and then replacing it with this empty blank uh, slate, right? Um, that everyone can, f well, not everyone, but all the new people can feel at home in, right? It's like erase, erase any, any sort of, any proof that anyone was there before. Um, so maybe you don't have to think about what's happening to your city or what, you know, what brought you there. Maybe you were pushed out of another place that you used to be able to afford. And now you're moving to like a low income place and you, but you have to like wipe, you don't really want to notice that that's happened. So you have to kind of move into a blank slate um, neighborhood uh, with all the same coffee shops. And um, so you don't notice this sort of downward slide of everybody. Um, but it's sort of, I don't know. It's like this sort of cycle of, of, of destroying or devaluing something and then papering over it with, with something, uh, less meaningful, less rooted in, in itself. And, and I think it applies to the people, the people section too. Like, like, yeah, you don't, it's like not acceptable to have, different teeth as Jenny was saying the dental thing is very true especially in America where your smile is like your currency right it's your it's your smile and confidence that gets and everywhere else in the world people think it's bizarre like how much Americans smile but it's like it's our way of selling ourselves in in this culture but but yeah it's like this um erase whatever makes you unique and um what makes you you take the soul out of out of you at you know out of your indiv individual attributes or whatever and then just like conform to this uh to this approved image that'll get you further in life or that will make you more acceptable um yeah i don't know i saw this link through everything of uh of of destruction of the old and then you sort of slap together something new with cheap materials that that'll sort of be universally accepted or um yeah agreeable to most. yeah cha cha said body gentrification yeah but it's interesting because the new bodies are are sort of they're sort of it's weird like it's um I, I know you guys i'm sure you guys have heard that that a lot of the attributes that are that are now sewn on right to, to women especially are are sort of um colorized right like they're they're let's say 
bigger butts, which were previously unacceptable when it's, you know, mostly people of color who have uh, curvier bodies or something like that or fuller lips. And it's never considered beautiful when, when, when people have them originally. But then you sort of make everybody think that's ugly, sort of destroy it and then rebuild it in this, um, in this commodified way where you can buy it as an injection. It's, it's sort of the same cycle of, of yeah, destroying it and then rebuilding it and profiting from rebuilding it. Yeah, for sure. That's a one way to, I think there's also, I think that, um, part of, part of why I like appreciate these kinds of, of analyses and conversations is because like everybody has, has an idea of what things should look like. Right. But if we're all, you know, like Andrew was saying, if we're all just drawing from the same set of things, if you, the, the section on brands kind of goes more into that, you know, like there's certain, you know, part of it is there's certain colors every year, you know, there's a certain combination of, of like eggplant and mustard yellow from, that I remember from French Connection when I was in in the eighties, it was like you talking like furniture and carpets, clothes. But yeah, furniture and carpets too, like the avocado for refrigerator in in, yeah. in the U.S. You know the now that's the, cool and vintage. The, yeah, right. Or the or the like red orange color. You know that that everything was for a while. Part of that is manufacturing, right? There's no reason our TVs have to be, the plastic part has to be black. It just is. There's no reason the coffee makers has to be black or steel or whatever. It just is. You can make it any color you want it. It's plastic. It's the joy of plastic. But everybody wants the same. I don't think that's true, though. But I think... Um, with fashion, it's been interesting. I definitely see this like faster rate of turnover. And I think something interesting started happening, which was like the turnover was so fast in fashion that you're almost never out of style, right? It used to be that style maybe was was decades long. So, oh my God, someone could wear something that looks so, if someone was wearing like acid wash jeans in the 90s, they look, oh my God, you look so 80s, right? Um, or if they're wearing, you know, bell bottoms in the, in the 80s, it's like, oh, you look so 70s, right. whatever. So it was like there's this sort of time period where you could look very out of style. But I, I noticed in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, like the cycles became so short. You could just hang on to what you had and it would come back in style. And I kind of wonder if that's not why the fashion industry is collapsing on top of, you know, production being so cheap and all this fast fashion stuff destroying it. I think there's also been this like, if the cycle gets so short, um, you can't do the same sort of psychological tricks on people to make them change their wardrobe. Right. Totally true. Totally true. Part of it is the fast, the influence of fast fashion and the number of seasons, because that's how clo retail clothing stores 
at least before fast fashion, before, you know, this century. They, they, you know, you had your fall, you had your winter, your spring, but then like they added in, you had your cruise season and then you had your like, in the springtime, you had your like Easter before you actually got spring. So they kept adding them. Wait, when you say cruise, do you say, when you say cruise, like a Sunday drive or something? No, like, uh, like cruise on the ocean. Oh, okay. Like resort wear. So there's like spring break because the season now every week was a season. So you're right, Stuby, totally, because they had to lap themselves to to make enough money because there were too many. Right, you couldn't you couldn't say that the, the you can't wear that. That's last year's. That's so last year. Oh my god, that doesn't happen. I completely concur. Mm-hmm. And Johnny says now he sees a lot of teenagers wearing pajama pants and crog shoes, which is like the collapse of fashion, right? <laughs> <laughs> utter, utter, utter destruction of fashion. Yeah, end stage capitalism. <laughs> That's so many people in my neighborhood um, in Mexico are like, what's well, so something I really appreciate here actually is that a lot of, um, a lot of people like the vast majority of people are not in a super big hurry walking anywhere. Um, and so I kind of am. And so I find myself being like at opposition to the flow of crowds, but at the same time, it, I actually kind of appreciate that people aren't like stressed about getting everywhere immediately uh, and definitely a lot of people who I see, like, if I take my dogs, I usually take my dogs out in the morning for a quick walk and, like, just pee to poop. And then another one in the afternoon that's, like, a little longer. Um, and usually when I'm in that kind of afternoon walk, anyone else I see walking around going to, like, a corner store with their dogs is wearing really cozy pajamas and, like, sandals of some kind, often Crocs. And I didn't, I never think of it as, as like, I don't care about fashion at all. <laughs> I think of it as like, I don't work today or I don't have a job right now and I don't have anywhere to be and fuck everyone else. I'm going to just be comfortable. I don't know. It's the little things like, you know, putting actual clothes and shoes on before you go out in public that kind of make it a civilized society and I don't mind the odd odd walking with with your you know but it's just so much nicer if people just like take a moment to look in the mirror really it'll boost your self esteem you'd be surprised how handsome or beautiful you are I agree um, I, I, I I'm, I'm trying to get over my sort of <laughs> horror at seeing people walking around outside with pajamas. I've been working on it for like 25 years now, but (laughs) I think I'm I'm in love. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very like, I'm not super, super dressy, but I I often feel I'm very self-conscious of like fitting in because just I moved around too much all my life. So I'm always like trying to fit in, but there are places you go where you're always overdressed, you know, because everyone is so dressed down and it's normal. And I just wish maybe instead of, you know, people having to dress like this or like that like I don't I don't like being thought of as posh because I'm walking around you know Montreal with with um 
you know, not Crocs with, although they don't wear Crocs there, but you know, um, something dressier. Like it was very casual in, in Montreal. I was surprised, but um, I didn't, I was so self-conscious about looking uh, uppity or, or posh or something. And I just wish like we could, maybe people can just dress how they want and we just stop labeling somebody sloppy or posh or, you know, um, it just, that's just what they like to wear. And it doesn't mean you can't be friends or that they look down on you or that they, or that they uh, are whatever, not making an effort or whatever. They're just comfortable <laughs> in whatever they're wearing. Like, I think that's much easier than, than trying to conform in any ways, just trying to accept each other. Yeah, I like that. I, I was going to say, though, about the put on some real, quote unquote, real clothes before you go out the door. For me, I always have to put on, like, non-pajama stuff early in the day, solely because, um, especially the last couple of years, I work from home. And so if I keep pajamas on, and like don't make my bed and brush my teeth and shit and shower in the morning, I'll fucking fall asleep again, like at my computer midday and not get anything done. So it's like a kind of more of just a routine thing for me. So I don't ruin my day, but um, my wife is also like much more into, um, you know, dressing well than I am. I'm, I'm more like dressed functionally, especially because for years, like most of my life, I was riding my bicycle everywhere for commuting. So if I was not wearing like really sturdy pants or shorts um, and shoes and stuff and like had good layers for temperature changes, that was just not good for, um, you know, I would wear through my clothes or get really cold or too hot and not be able well, to Well, and I mean, no offense, but men are kind of, I mean, to be gendered about it, men do have like a, a less options, fewer, fewer, a, a fewer, large, smaller range of options. I'll get the, I'll get the words out. A smaller range of options to choose from than, than women. And I, I feel like, at least in this culture, and this is entirely possibly, well, it is my own perception because it is mine, right? <laughs> but I feel like women are held to a, 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 more, a higher standard of, of like healthy fitness looking and, and, and maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but it feels like it's like a higher pressure on women to, to actually like men can just be, I'm just rugged doing my stuff. Oh and yeah. Then... I think you're right. I, I think what's interesting is like the Seattle uh, or like PNW fashion is actually kind of um, not that so much like the, the kind of standard fashion for uh, women in the Northwest that seems like totally acceptable is like t-shirt, yoga pants or jeans uh whatever kind of boots that you want they could be really comfy or kind of more rugged and then like flannel and and rain jacket and i think again that has more to do with like the client the literal weather there than it does like too much else because there are i definitely see like downtown in seattle a lot of women and, and men dressed up like much more fancy and i view that as like 
maybe a dress code or a social convention at their work that's compelling them to do that more so than like they have decided that they want to look really good all the time. Yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah. That's what Casual Friday wants you to believe. But it's selling something, right? Like that's it, it's it's communicating something. I think that's that's why it's so important to people, right? Like I would imagine that you know your wife grew up in Mexico, right, Andrew? Yeah. Yeah, so there's this, I guess the, the, the societal pressure there is to look, you know, um, put together or educated or, you know, civilized in some way, like, like oh, hireable or, or like you, you're, you're like striving upwards, right? For sure. Like everyone's hair is, is like well-managed men as well. The, you know, the, the, the styling you know, frequent haircuts and, and, uh, you know, liberal use of gel in men is definitely more in Mexico. And what's funny that's interesting is also like in the Southwest U S that used to be Mexico, that's the same there, uh, even outside of like, um, Mexican communities. Uh, like my, my mom has a twin sister. And so that she has two sons that are my cousins and they live in, um, Southern California and they've both, um, until recently, now they both grow their hair way the fuck out, and I love it. Um, but uh, until more recently, they were also um, using a lot of gel, like in high school and college, because that's just kind of the culture. And But what you were saying, though, I think is right. Like, everyone smells good in Mexico, and everybody, like, you almost never run into someone with, like, bad BO, ever. Like, way less in Mexico than the U.S., and everyone's hair is looking good. Like I, sometimes I'm actually shocked if I look at a woman's hair and I'm like, there's literally not even one that's out of place. Not even one. And I don't, I like, I would never put that much right. effort in. But if even you being feeling. Yeah. Because where you grew up putting that much effort in made you look lame, right? Made you look like, like you're striving or you're, you know, you're, you're, whatever uh preppy or you know like it had a different meaning probably depending on which class you're in or you know if you're well i went to yeah my parents kept me in catholic school for a lot of years and i definitely was on the lower economic strata of all of those schools so there were definitely a lot of people who you know in that weird closed social environment seemed like they were very popular and um put a ton of effort in and money into their outfits and their hair and everything and makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, maybe it was that I, I did always kind of, I was always kind of a nerd punk combo, I guess. I don't know. Like that doesn't really describe it very well, but I never had the resources to, or any desire whatsoever to do that, even though that was kind of like, the cool thing in, in school for me until I got like later in high school and into college. Yeah. Well, I know in uh, Northern California, like the CEOs here, they always wear like uh, hoodies and jeans and like, you'll never, I had one, I had one boss. I never saw wearing pants. He was always wearing shorts, you know? And it was just like, that's sort of the privilege of, of being so, 
I don't know, so rich in a way that you don't have to try not to look poor. And um, I was going to say what Johnny said, which is that, yeah, the, in a lot of the developing world, um, the you're trying not to look poor. You're trying to look presentable. You're trying to look like sort of above your station because maybe that'll get you there. Right? Yeah. So, so when the, a lot of people come here, I remember for my family too, like my mother used to wear dresses to the IGA in Canada and we were telling her, at uh, the grocery store, and we used to tell her like, we started noticing, we the kids were like noticing like, hey, you're overdressed, you know, other people are in pajamas and stuff, but it's this sort of like learning curve that that here looking rich actually makes you look poor in this in this strange way, where in the rest of the world is it's the opposite. Um, but I don't, I mean... I, I think Seattle also has its own, you know, strat like its own market, right, of coolness. What's cool in Seattle, I would argue after the nineties especially was like, you know, dressing down and not 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 looking like the man, maybe. So coolness, actually I, I went to this talk once of um I think it's what's her name? Uh Alice Walker's daughter. I think it's Rebecca Walker. She had this book called Black Cool, and and um, I remember the the really interesting part of her talk was about how corporations will send uh, these people that are called cool hunters into really poor neighborhoods to see, like in America, you know, like um, uh, inner city neighborhoods and stuff, to see what people are doing, and then they'll bring that the cool hunters work for let's say Nike or something, and. Um, they'll they'll bring that back to sort of the company and and that'll be the new look so if it's a uh, if it's like you know tights with crazy patterns on it or whatever like it it it's actually like a low income fashion thing but then the brands turn it around the next cycle into the the new fashion thing so i remember she she said something about like mismatched shoes like wearing the same shoes but in different colors or something like that um was one of the things but yeah, it was a really. I didn't read the actual book, but I went to her talk, and it was uh, it was really interesting that they they end up making money off of poor people's actual fashion innovation and reselling it back to the same poor people. Uh, of course. Yeah, I've seen the different shoe thing when I was a teacher in New Orleans in the nineties. <laughs> Well, these are the things that happen. Yeah, it's kind of like resource extraction in a way, right? Raw resources, and then you refine them and resell them back at a at a high, at a big markup. Dude, even the capitalists have colonized mines. On that happy note. This is a good episode of Crowdsourcing Revolution. I appreciate Phil, Stoopy, Andrew being here with me, reading through this article by Alex Merle. The link is in the show notes. Does anyone want to say anything before we uh, sign off for today? Oh, thanks. Thanks for hosting. It's a really good idea. Good article. Yeah, it was good. Thanks, Amanda. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone have a great time today, this weekend. It is the end of March. Here we go. Here comes April. This is Crowdsourcing Revolution. I'm Amanda Rice.